Welcome back to another episode of the We Speak English Good Podcast. Today's guest is none other than guitarist, singer-songwriter, recording artist, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith performs and records under the name Stray Deuce. Uh, Chuck is a singer-songwriter guitarist who performs and records under the name Stray Deuce with many years' experience in the music business. He's performed and recorded all over the U.S. and abroad, appearing and working with such luminaries as Diana Ross, the Funk Brothers, Lee Rittenor, Paul Williams, uh, 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 and... Top 40 hitmaker Johnny Rivers and others. He was played with Willie's Nerve Clinic, a band formed with bass icon Dirk Lance, a founding member of multi-platinum band Incubus. Uh, Chuck has written the title track to the Diana Ross album Baby It's Me. He's been a recording artist for both Columbia and Motown, receiving a Clip uh, Clio Award honoring music he wrote for a series of radio commercials and has composed a techno-funk score for Planet Fashion in London. In addition, Chuck conducts various songwriting workshops and has lectured at the San Diego Writers Conference and the Learning Annex. He has taught courses on the history of rock and roll and the evolution of songwriting and played numerous studio dates as a singer, guitarist, and vocal arranger. There you go. I just I just did that. I just did that. That, that just makes it easier for me, folks. I just go on the website, I read the bio, and now you guys know what you're getting into. Uh, we... Me and Chuck have a wonderful conversation. We talk about monetizing your music. We talk about his experience recording with some legends. And uh, yeah, it's just a good, good chat. I hope you guys stick around. There's lots to learn. If you're a musician, there's lots to learn from it. If you're just listening because you like to listen to podcasts, well, you're in for a treat because we have a wonderful conversation. And that will be coming up here shortly but first go to rainamystique.com r-e-i-n-a-m-y-s-t-i-q-u-e.com and go check out her latest (coughs) sorry that was really gross i could hear the wetness and now i'm drinking seltzer water so you know things are happening uh, you can check out her latest release called The Moon. It's an EP. It has some slamming hits on there. Even a song that I produced and uh, and recorded with Raina called Put On Your Crown. You can also find Raina on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Raina Mystique. She streams four days a week, Mondays through Thursdays, 8 a.m. to around 12 p.m. And she also has started a new podcast called The Pretty People Podcast. It's very, very good. And so far, she's released two or three episodes so go check that out all the links are in the show notes go get yourself custom and uh, uh acclimated what i don't even what okay we're moving on speaking of twitch ugh, that was a bad segue 
We Speak English Good is on Twitch. We stream about three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and sometimes on Sundays. So tune in. We're streaming 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Mondays, Sundays, and Fridays. Wow, that was way out of order. And Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Come check it out. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the live stream. We Come be a part of the conversation. Come do stuff. Come subscribe to my channel and give me fucking money. JK. He, sons of bitches will never come anyways. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sometimes you guys come. Like one person has came. That's it. But that's okay. I don't mind. It, I, I I just appreciate y'all tuning into the audio side of things because this is this is where all the magic happens, baby. This is the this is where it all started, baby. But in all seriousness, come on over to the live stream. It's really fun. People ask questions. You hear it all the time. You hear people reoccurring uh, chat members that come back. All the chat members, community members. And uh, it's just a good time. It's a good time. I'll just say it's a good time and chat members over and over again. And maybe you guys will come. If you want to support the show monetarily, go to our Stream Elements store or Threadless store. Stream Elements store. If you are a sub on Twitch, you get a percentage off the whole inventory. We have hats and stuff over there. Stuff you won't find on our Threadless store. But if you want to go to our Threadless store, no problem. Threadless.wespeakenglishgood. What is that? No, wespeakenglishgood.threadless.com. That'll take you over there. You can also support the show by like, subscribe, and review. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the, all the things. Fuck Facebook. But, man, Facebook is pissing me off right now because I, I updated it or something in there. And now it won't let me do shit. It's pissing me off, bro. It's pissing me off. I, I, I just I fucking just detest Facebook these days. But I have been finding some fire memes on Facebook. So, you know everything has its purpose <sighs> you can also subscribe to us on apple itunes you can follow us on spotify you can subscribe to us on youtube where all our video uh versions of our podcast is at as long as as well as rumble and of course you can subscribe to us on twitch you can also review leave a review on apple itunes or, or give us a five star rating on spotify Give us some magic and love. All right, so let's jump into our guest this week, Chuck Smith. Uh, everybody, go and check out his website, which I'm going to pull up now because I have a terrible memory. It's straydeuce.com, and that's S-T-R-A-Y-D-E-U-C-E.com. Go check out his new music. Go check out his, his bio. Go check out all the stuff he has going on. He has all kinds of albums and videos out. So go support your boy. He's on Instagram and all that good stuff. So go get yourself some Chuck Smith. Uh, on Friday, we have Bentley Michaels back on the show. He's a voiceover actor, a musician. Uh, he just does too much. You know what? He does a lot. He's a lot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Bentley. Uh, so Bentley will be back on the show on Friday. So tune in for that. And let's uh, let's get into Chuck. Everybody, put your hands together for Chuck Smith. that about Santana. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Santana collapsed in Detroit. It was, uh, I was scared for him because I love Santana. Are you a fan? Uh, yeah, I have been, especially their set at Woodstock, which was a long time ago. Oh my God, that is amazing. Uh, apparently, he was on he was on some sort of uh, uh, illicit substance, is what I've heard. Um, I <laughs> probably <laughs> he and everybody. Else. There. <laughs> right, exactly. No, he no that that performance at um, at, uh, uh, at 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 Woodstock is incredible. Uh, what's that song? I remember the first time I ever heard. Uh, is it Django? Wow, what is the name of the song? It's the one where it's like Django, Django, wow. and it's just like tons of. Anyways, I'm not going to sit here and and you know terribly sing Santana songs, but I remember seeing that song. In particular, and just being like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I was I was a young young person, just learning guitar on my own. Uh, when did you come into Santana? Uh, right about then, because I was living in San Francisco at the time. Okay. So they were from San Francisco, and the Fillmore was going in the Summer of Love and all that kind of stuff. So. Okay, so yeah. you got to experience that. Yeah, it was uh, before Woodstock. Woodstock was in 1969. So, yeah. yeah. It was quite a summer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the summer of '69. I think there's about well, the summer of '67 was the summer of love in San Francisco, I and see. that was unbelievable. Yeah, and and you and how old were you then, if you don't mind? Uh, I was um, about a senior in college. Wow, so perfect timing! Holy crap! Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. What? So, what was that like? What was that like for you? I mean, like the dead and, and Jefferson Airplane and and and, and Ken Kesey, all that stuff is sort of happening all around that time. What what was your experience with it? Well, um, that particular summer, I was between my junior and senior year in, in uh, college, and so I went down to the Fillmore twice a week. And the interesting thing about that time was, is the the band I thought that was the best of all of them was a band called the Moby Grape. And uh, so if you get a chance to look at some of their early things, really an incredible band. Everybody wrote music, everybody played. They had three guitar players in the group, uh, a, a guy that had a Viking voice that was one of the lead singers, but they all sang. And uh, incredible band, really something else. Very good. Yeah. Wow. Moby Grape. And and so, you know, I, I've never heard of them. And, and, you know, like, did they ever go beyond the, the San Francisco scene? Oh, yeah. They were on Columbia Records. They were, they oh. were uh, yes, but they had a lot of personal issues, shall we say, and some mental illness even. Um, also, I think they were, they were mishandled. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for example, a, a person like Chrissy Hine, the, the Pretenders uh, leader, that's one of her favorite uh, albums is the Moby Grape. Uh, uh, Lee Sklar, the famous studio bass player, uh, his his inspiration was Bob Mosley, who was the bass player and the singer in that band. So they're not unknown. They're they're one of those tragic bands that you hear about. Yeah, yeah. Great, great songs and stuff. Yeah. That that seems to happen a lot. You know, I mean, still happens a lot. It seems like mental illness runs rampant in the in the artist community. But it, it's uh, but you know, especially then. And I feel like, especially in that time, everyone's sort of experimenting, and everyone's sort of go, you know, going, going out there. Uh, you know, new frontiers in music and art are being achieved. Uh, and I feel like if you have some sort of unresolved mental illness uh, going into a scene like that, I feel like that uh, the drugs, the the atmosphere might accentuate that. Uh, would you agree with that? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't think mental illness was real. This was a particularly, it was definitely mental illness, mm-hmm. okay, in the part of two of the people in the band. I got as it. As far as the rest of it is concerned, all of us doing the drugs and everything else, and the ferment that was going on because the music was very much tied into the civil rights struggle, the, the anti-war movement, all of that. I mean, it was an incredible time, and the music was very much involved with that. I mean, a lot of uh, younger people that I've taught over the years or who I've played with in bands always ask me about the 60s. And the big difference uh, between then and now, particularly when we're talking about music, was let's take the top 40, for example. So you would have the younger bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys and the Beatles and all these groups. Then you would have Motown. Then you would have uh, the real R&B people like Wilson Pickett and James Brown and Aretha Franklin. You know, you'd have pop stuff in there. You'd have some left field country hit. And those were all in the same top 40. And so if you were in a band back then, you played all that stuff and you listened to all of it. And it's not like that anymore. It's very much genre uh, focused. Uh, The top 10 now is very hip hop, electronic, uh, even with those who sing, with the exception of people like uh, Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and now Olivia Rodrigo and Billie Eilish. You know, who I, I think are all excellent songwriters and excellent artists, great voices and stuff like that. But there's a, a real sameness to what you hear there. Mm. Now, of course, you can you can go anywhere now and hear anything you want because there's so many people making music of all kinds. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's in, even an indie movement now that's enormous. And here's something for your listeners that was struck me. I was uh, asked to do a song for a person by a group called Monster Monster. Mm. And it's a song called Hayloft. Now, this song was actually released in 2008. So that's a long time ago, right? Right. But it just now became this huge thing because somebody used it as a soundtrack for their video on TikTok. Yeah. So this band is from Vancouver, and they're actually very good. I, I like them. Uh, but all of a sudden they started seeing their social media stuff just go berserk. Right. And so I go on Spotify and they have 340 million streams on that one song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's insanity. Right. And so then a buddy of mine decided to figure out, okay, how much money is that to the artist? And so you can actually go online and there's where you can figure that out. Yeah. It's a hundred thousand dollars. For 340 million streams. Right, right. Yeah, and, and if, mean, if you sold 350 million singles back in the 60s oh even, my you're, you're, you're a very wealthy human being depending on your contract, but... Uh, no, well, that, that would be ridiculous because yeah. we used to talk about double and triple platinum, for example, which means 3 million. Right. And that was a lot of money. That That's a huge hit record. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine 340 million, but of course it's different. That's people listening to the track. You right, know? right. But that's how things have changed. Yeah, it's huge change. No, uh, that uh, Kate Bush's song "Running Up, Running Up the Hill." That that it got traction on Stranger Things, and then the, then content creators started playing it on um, on on, uh, on on TikTok, and then all of a sudden now every video has if I could make a deal with God, you know, like which I absolutely love the song, and and I actually like Kate Bush beforehand. I I, I 
I dig the '80s a lot, but but that has to be such a a, a strange thing to walk into uh, to get because it was charting number one in the UK and it was charting here in the United States. So I, I I couldn't imagine you know writing a song you know 30 some years ago or even 10 years ago or whatever, and then all of a sudden it's like oh now it's a hit and it's like what happened? <laughs> yeah, it, no, yeah. music has changed a lot. And you've maintained a uh, a career through all of this, which is uh, which is absolutely amazing. And you know how have you how have you dealt with these changes as as time has moved forward through your career? How have you dealt with these? I mean, these are extreme changes, especially in the last twenty years since Napster and iTunes and all that. How have you sort of been rolling with these changes? Well, I, I actually uh, began teaching for a while was one thing I did, Yeah, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but it's like uh, I heard an interview with the Doobie Brothers and those in your audience that might not know who they are. They were a very successful band, had many hit records in the 70s, and they were talking about how it used to be that you toured to support your new album. Hmm. Now it's just the opposite. The album supports the tour. Yeah, because that's how most of these bands make their money is by touring. So you become kind of a service industry when you play music. You know, um, I played for a while uh, during this time with uh, the bass player from Incubus, who was a student of mine a long time ago. Oh, cool! And we uh, we made an album and, and played quite a bit, and it was a really great band. And we had personnel problems, and that broke up, and <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, recently, I've just started getting back into it and, and uh, hired some people to work with social media and all that sort of stuff and did a bunch of videos and recorded a bunch of new material and all that. And I've tried to uh, concentrate on topical things, for example, that Putin thing. Yeah. Now, you, TikTok. Now, here's an interesting thing for your listeners as well. I posted that video and all of a sudden it got flagged on TikTok for what they called multiple violations, and they threatened to take my account down. <laughs> yeah, TikTok is rough like that. Now, all the stuff, the crap they put up on that thing, and because I'm protesting this guy in Russia who's responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, including his own, yeah. and I'm the one who gets flagged. Yeah. No, it, it's it's no, it's a really weird environment right now to to try to be a content creator to put out music and especially if you're trying to say something, you know, and speak out about things. It's very locked down. And TikTok is a very, I mean, first of all, it it, it definitely is being uh, the data is being collected by the Chinese government. You know, and nothing against the Chinese people; they're wonderful people. But it's like, uh, it, but the government is having access to it. They are using it for whatever reasons. It is a Chinese. Uh, based company so like the fact that it's very much locked down uh and and it's very you know censorship is very uh, prevalent it's it's definitely one of those platforms where you have to be very careful i, I follow this one girl she's a black lady who who um you know she leans sort of to the right on some issues and she gets all these comments where she, they're calling her a, a coon and they're calling her, uh, you know, the N-word even sometimes. And she gets her account taken down if, if she calls it out. And it's all these white people who are calling her these things or, or it's black people as well. But it's but she's just highlighting the fact that people are calling her racist names and TikTok is taking down 
her account for for um, violations. So, yeah, censorship is a very huge thing right now, and um, it, it's kind of scary. And and you know, as as a creator, as a musician who you know speaks out on issues, I mean, how how do you feel? in this environment creating especially trying to create songs that you're where you, there's a real message behind it uh well if, if you're afraid of it then what was the reason for writing it in the first place you know I, I, you have to kind of stand up i mean look what those people are doing over there they're fighting for their country i mean and i'm just going to be worried about putting a song up on tiktok yeah. i mean I, I don't worry about that kind of stuff yeah. i could care less you know and nothing's going to happen to me i mean it's just uh, aggravating because there's a lot of crap that goes up there. Absolutely. It's just the stuff, you know, ridiculous things. And, and uh, so it, it was an interesting episode. Uh, and I think that the, the video is still up there on TikTok for mm. some reason. I have no idea why, but they keep flagging it and they keep saying things about it. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I mean, it's it very interesting to be able to talk to you because you've seen so much through it. And so, uh, you seem to be getting these social media things down. Did it take you a while to get onto it, or have you always been on top of technology as it's developed over the years? Um, uh, a lot of people in my generations and the ones around uh, have trouble with uh, technology. I don't have trouble with it. It's just that I don't interact with it as much as, say, someone that I work with who's a lot younger than I am and has grown up with it. Yeah. But I made it a point to understand it. And I would say to your audience as well that if you don't understand it, you need to get somebody to help you with that because there's no other way to work your way through to be successful in the music business now unless you are. Yeah. So recently I hired a marketing firm to do some work for me and to post things and to do some branding and all that sort of thing. And I would highly recommend it. Yeah. It's not cheap. Hmm. And if you can do it yourself, even better. And a lot of a lot of kids can, a lot of people can. Yeah. You know, obviously, you see a lot of YouTube influencers, right, that uh, make all kinds of money. Uh, and and you have to find ways to monetize what you do, though. And that's that's the real challenge. Yeah, is to find ways to do that. I mean, for example, I have a, a buddy of mine who has a blues band, and they're they're okay, and um, they play here and there. But they've had videos up for like ten years of. Um, gigs they've done say and they're all cover tunes and some other originals and they get a few thousand views but all now youtube has put uh, ads on them so that means that my buddy gets money that may not be a lot but you see what i mean that's one form obviously a lot of a lot of people who write are now getting their songs into you know tv and movies and commercials all that sort of stuff is fair game and you need to you need to look at that yeah, Sync it's really, really important. See, back in the 60s, for example, nobody would allow their stuff to be in a commercial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how different it is. A commercial, are you kidding? You know, that's right. the enemy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, even in my generation coming up in the in the early 2000s and, you know, 2010s and stuff like that generation was there was still that lingering sensibility of like, if you do that, you're a sellout, you're, you know, like you can't put your stuff in commercials. I mean, 
you know, there's the, the there's the scene in uh, Oliver Stone's movie about the doors where Jim Morrison is like flipping out about uh, them using light my fire on on a car commercial, which you know whether that I assume that happened, but I don't know. You know, these biopics are weird, but you know there was this culture within music and within the music industry where if you did. Uh, if you did do that, you were a sellout. Now it's like, let's sell out. Where's that money at? Because, you know, otherwise, what, where are you making the money? I mean, there's YouTube monetization. They do ads. You can, uh, you know, content creators can get sponsorship. You know, I get sponsors for my, my YouTube, or not my YouTube, but for my podcast on the audio side. Um, this platform right here, Twitch allows you to monetize your channel where people can subscribe to you and, and tip you with money and stuff. So there's all these different ways to do it. But man, if you're not plugged into it and if you're not aware of what's going on, you are really spending a lot of time and, and energy and effort into, you know, into, a, a, into what amounts to no, no money. And I don't know about anybody else, but I need to make money. <laughs> and, um, uh, and that's that's how it works. That's how it works. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I forgot about this question, but we had a question from the from the chat, and they were wondering what your opinion on Leland Sklar is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny thing because <laughs> uh, Lee, you know, he's he's been a studio player, played with all kinds of people. He's been in James Taylor's band for forever. You know, he's a really excellent musician. My own experience with him on a personal level was I hired him to do a session years and years and years ago. And it was not a good experience from my standpoint because I was producing for somebody. And it was one of those things where he was playing some music over his headphones while we were in between takes. And he'd play that music right until the count off. <laughs> and so... <laughs> You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, at any rate, and I had to replace his bass part as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, I, I will say uh, he's put up some things recently. Um, I saw them about uh, six months ago. He may be still doing them where he talks about various artists that he's worked with. Uh, it's just an extemporaneous kind of chat he does. And they're really good. Mm. Um, you, can, you can really, it's, it's interesting to hear his interaction with all these famous musicians that he's played with. Is he, is he like notoriously hard to work with? Is that why? No, I, I don't think so. I, I not, no, I wouldn't say that. It just happened to be this one. And, and who knows, it could have been a bad morning for mm -hmm. him. I don't know. It, it, yeah. So I wouldn't want to cast aspersions. There's obviously a lot of people that work with him and, and, and enjoyed it. So yeah, these things happen. Yeah. But, but you were talking about the doors earlier, you know, here in recent years, uh, when the when three of them were alive, I think the isn't it Ray Mansrick died recently, the keyboard I, player. I believe so. Yeah. And anyway, there was three of them left, and many opportunities came for their music to be used in commercials and such. And the drummer always mixed it to the consternation of his other two bandmates, and so they always had this clash. Uh, so that went on for years, and he never did relent. He never did let the music be used. Wow. So. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about that, you know. I mean, I'm sure there was millions of dollars to be had, um, if they would. I mean, because I mean, the doors have such a huge catalog of, of hits and music and, and different vibes and different, uh, 
you know, different uh, atmospheres that they could set for any sort of situation. So, like, you know, there's millions of dollars on the table, and uh, I just feel like there's something to be said about having that conviction to sort of stick by your scruples and be like, hey, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but, you know, uh, but also, but I, I'm sure they're not, they didn't, you know, I'm sure that they're not poor people, you know, I'm sure they're, they're wealthy and they have money, no. but no, they're not. No, no, they are. They, yeah, yeah. And that, are uh, but who knows what they've done with their money right. over a period of time and and yeah it's a chance to earn money so that is a question mm. and you, you stand on one side or the other and the drummer never because they all had equal they all had to agree in their particular case mm. some other case maybe majority would rule mm. not sure but, yeah. but that's an example of no you can't use my stuff but of course now I mean Bob Dylan's done a a Victoria's Secret ad, for heaven's sake! Yeah. Well, he sold his catalog for four hundred million dollars. Yeah, so. which is crazy. What do you What do you think of that? What do you think about all these artists? Axel did the same thing. You can't use Guns N' Roses music in uh, in in commercials. I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I I don't know uh, yeah. the the situation where you have a lot of legacy artists like mm -hmm. Dylan and but Bruce Springsteen and David right. Crosby selling their catalogs is I, I get it. You get to a certain point. And you don't want to deal with the administration of it, hiring people to handle all that business. Uh, so you just want to cash out. You're close to the end of your life. Yeah. And, you know, you can get David Crosby just sold his stuff for $100 million because he couldn't tour anymore oh, wow. because of the pandemic. And that was where he was getting most of his income because he'd blown a lot of it over the years. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, and, and the artists now, kids now that are playing, the, the same thing happens. And you still see kids uh, overdosing and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, what was that guy, Juice something or other, the rapper? Juice he had that, uh, yeah, that Yeah, he had that sting um, sample that he used in a song, you know, and he died just after the song was a hit. Yeah, It still happens, but you can't blame musicians because it's happening everywhere. It's just because musicians are more famous, so you hear about it, right? Right. But I hate this thing is there's always artists that are, you know, taking all the drugs. I mean, are you kidding me? The opioid crisis is all over the place. It's Absolutely. the whole population, right? Absolutely. No. You know, and the woman vacuuming her rug during the day when she's bored out of her mind watching soap operas and, and taking uh, Valium. It's the same thing, yeah. right? Yeah. So. No, I, I agree. The opiate crisis and even with the pandemic, you know, there there's... Uh, there's been such a spike in, in I mean, suicides and in, in drug overdoses and drug addiction and, and mental health, obviously, that it, it does just sort of get focused in on musicians and artists because they're, they're they have the attention. But but, uh, you know, everyone's suffering right now from all these things, you know, so it, it, it you make a good point. It's like they, they want to blame it all on the on the artist. But it's like, yo, it's like your neighbor you know, and it's your, it's your sister-in-law and it's your, your uncle or whatever the situation is, you know, I mean, this country and the world for that matter has gone through a very traumatic event with this whole pandemic. And so, I mean, it's only accentuated stuff and made it kind of wild. Um, how, how was your experience with the pandemic? What were you doing over there? How'd you use your time? Uh, that's when I made a lot of the music I did. I also started, I wrote, um, uh, a novel which I'm just about through with. Oh wow! Um, so I made uh, and I taught a lot as well. So I, I made a uh, good use of the time. Uh, I was bound and determined to do that because I could see it was going to really be 
nobody could play, you know, live. So that's only now just starting to come back, and, and the ticket prices are unbelievable. Oh my god! Right? Just, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Man, before I, you know, I girls get, uh, that went to see Billy Eilish, it cost them two hundred and fifty dollars a piece to, to see the show. Wow! And and that was probably just general admission tickets. Uh. I think they had decent seats, mm. but um, yeah, it was really expensive. And, and to go see some, again, a legacy act like the Eagles, oh my gosh, you're talking about $500. Paul McCartney is another one. I, oh. I even had a lot of young people going to see him and the prices were unbelievable. I mean, they were very good concerts, excellent yeah. concerts. They better be, right? <laughs> well, they got to recoup those losses, man. <laughs> they got to recoup three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think people are starting to get back into it now. You know, they had that big festival in uh, Europe, that Glastonbury, mm-hmm. yeah. where Bill and Kendrick Lamar were headlining. I think Paul McCartney was one of the headliners too. Yeah. So everybody's getting back out there again. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell us about your book. Can you talk about your book? I, I'm really interested. Actually, yeah, it's actually uh, about my life. I would call it autobiographical fiction. So I've used my life and, and particularly the music aspects of it, to uh, tell uh, the story of the time I lived. So there's a lot of references to things that actually happened. There are a lot of things that actually happened to me, but they may be put into a different context. Uh, The characters are, some of them are are an amalgam of certain people. And you understand what I'm saying? So uh, it it does work in a chronological order and that sort of thing. But, uh, and I tried to... uh, use a writing style that was similar to what I use in my lyrics as well. So, but it's been fun. And it's also many of you out there planning on writing your first novel. It's a lot of work. (laughs) What, 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 uh, like what kind of things, uh, what kind of work do you have to put into it? Like, uh, you know, I imagine having to remember all these things and, and categorize it and stuff, but like, what, what did you find? Well, you that, have... That's actually the easy part is really? actually figuring out a way to, to write it. You, you have to have a style. You, I mean, yeah, there's punctuation and all that, but no, it, it's the way you have to put your words together. Really. You have to develop a style. Hmm. At least I do. And uh, that's the hard part. So as you're writing through and you have to keep that style consistent. Yeah. Right. You, you you can't be stuck going all over the place unless that's the point you're trying to make. But uh, and that's real hard to do to maintain that over. I'm up to about 250, 275 pages now. And it's just a, it's a slog. I'm telling you, it really is. <laughs> what do you, do you have like um, are you like one of those writers that, uh, you know, from. From 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., I'm gonna drink my coffee and, and eat my breakfast, and then I and then I write for three hours, and then that's it. Or or how do you how do you go about that kind of uh, workload? Uh, I, I don't have set schedules mm-hmm. I, I, for music or anything. Oh really? Um, I, it just comes up. I, I I do try to put a lot of time into it because I like doing it. Mm-hmm. You, you got to have that. You got to right. like doing it. And for songwriters, uh, if they're listening, um, some people can write songs real quickly. They come quickly, and a lot of times people think those are their best songs. And that may be the case. I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to, particularly the lyrics, I tend to work on those a while. Uh, the melodies come pretty quickly. Hmm. But now everything's changed as far as the recording of stuff, right? Hmm. I mean, all of us, uh, people listening, yourself, uh, 
we can do the whole thing on a laptop. Yeah. Right. So if it helps, I'll describe how I record my stuff. Please. So what I do is I have a digital recorder. It's not even a laptop, but it's something that I've learned to use very quickly. Uh, And it is digital. So it is on a hard drive. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what I do there is like, for example, if you listen to any of those music at the beginning there, what I do is I put the vocals, the guitars, and the bass. I record all of that myself. And then I do a mix. And then I take it to another person who is really good with Logic, which is the Apple uh, DAW, which is the uh, recording program on Apple. And there's Pro Tools and Appleton and Cakewalk. There's all, a whole bunch of them. But Logic and Pro Tools are probably the most famous. And so then what we do is we add... The drums, which may be loops, they may be a drum machine that we put together. Uh, We add samples, soundscapes, we destroy them, we do different things so they don't sound at all like what we started with. You understand what I'm saying? You can do literally anything. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, on that uh, Putin thing, for example, there's marching uh, soldiers on there. (laughs) There's all sorts of stuff. There's strings. There's any little keyboard things we need. We can put those in. And then that's added to what I do. And then you have to mix that and then master it. And then that's the end of it. And I'm sure that's similar for a lot of people. And if you're in the hip hop world, uh, definitely. Because a lot of your beats, uh, including the bass, are all done off a keyboard. Not always, but a lot of the time. And, you know, you have that hip hop tends to have a real heavy bass. They tend to have that 808 uh, drum machine sound with the (laughs) cymbal thing on there all the time. You know, yeah. uh, but it's uh, like, so that becomes real. And people who produce dance stuff, electronic music. I, 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 there was a guy who was producing Lady Gaga and he was talking about doing his work on a laptop on the plane from L.A. to New York. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I. I... So now it's changed a lot. And unless you get in with that and can t- uh, make peace with it you're not going to get very far these days unless you have the wherewithal to own a, your own recording studio. Right. Right. And if you want to deal with, um, you know, tape and all that kind of thing, you can still do that. I think actually Dave Grohl with the the Foo Fighters uh, still does that. Yeah. He bought that studio. What is it? it He did. He did. He bought, well, he bought the, he bought the equipment. Oh, he bought the equipment. He he bought the board. yeah. Yeah. It's an old Neve board that, uh, well, see, you probably could still use that board, definitely. Oh, yeah. Probably do. They just feed it into a computer instead mm. of into a tape machine. Obviously. Right, right. But it's good to get that, you know, in hand, that whole technological aspect of recording your stuff. And so it means that uh, songwriters can really make some excellent demos uh, on their own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with... Uh, because there is, it has changed so much. And like when you're talking about tape, I mean, now it's funny how tape, uh, now when you go record on the tape, you know, that is considered a specialty thing now, right? It's like, it's like, like my, my wife recorded her first, her first EP a couple years ago. She, uh, out of San Diego, um, she recorded it with, a, it was a live setup, you know, it was, uh, and it was all on the tape and then they dumped it into Prodi, uh, or Pro Tools. And, uh, you know, 
she was going for a specific sound, right? They had all the old uh, preamps and old compressors and all that stuff. It's like, it's a very boutique thing now to go and get. It's a very unique sound that people are chasing. But, over, but you know, back in the day, that's all you could do, right? And there was, and there was this, um, I, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it. I'm actually curious, but I feel like there had to, to be a, a certain level of musicianship when it came to recording on tape, because especially if you're in a big studio, tape isn't cheap. You know, you, you have to keep things moving. Or even if you're self-funding in a studio, which is even, you know, even more wild and recording on a tape, you're, you're paying for everything. Every minute counts. So uh, do you, what do you think about um, the level of musicianship as things have gone digital? Because there are, now you can sort of, you can make mistakes and you can just fix that. You can just loop something or you can take another piece of the song and just throw it in there quickly. Or do you, do you think that it's lowered the standard of musicianship? And if so, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Or I'm just curious on how you feel about that. Um, well, I, I'll say this. I, um, there, I'll say it this way. There used to be a, a jazz club here in L.A. called the Blue Whale. And it was a really excellent club and, and showcased a lot of the newer jazz talent uh, because I, and I have always loved jazz. And so I would go down there quite a bit. <clears throat> and what I was always struck by is that here's all these musicians that were playing incredible stuff, amazing technique, unbelievable. I'm talking about people in their early 20s through like their 40s, you know, the, the younger generation of musicians. And there's more than there's ever been. Yeah. And I think that's probably true of any genre you want to talk about, because so many people are playing music, right? Uh, you can, well, if you go on YouTube and you're a guitar player, I mean, it's ridiculous what you can see on there. You see guys playing, you know, 8,000 miles an hour and shredding like crazy, any style you want and crazy stuff on there. Now, how many of them will become famous? That's a whole nother question, because you still need the ultimate software, which is the song. For me, the only thing that is probably lacking nowadays in the importance of it as it went into the recording is the songwriting itself. Hmm. A lot of songwriting now is done by committee. Oh, yeah. So you have like four and five people on one song, for example. Yeah. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but you have situations where you'll have people come up with a small part on on uh, digitally, key keyboard thing. Maybe it's a beat or something like that. Then somebody will say, okay, we'll work with that a little bit. And so the person, okay, he works with it. And then say, okay, that's cool. Now they take that and give it to somebody else who starts to develop a melody over that and on and on and on until you finally have the whole thing. And so I think that has suffered, the, the song craft mm. probably. Now, someone like Taylor Swift, for example, she writes songs. Hmm. You know, those are definitely songs, whether you like her or not. I think, actually, she is a great role model for women yeah. because she calls the shots. It doesn't matter what aspect of her career it is, whether it's in the studio or anywhere else. And she's writing the tunes. Now, she may have help with some of them, but she is the engine behind all of it. And, for example... When Apple was switching over and then they wanted to have this three-month period where they were going to allow subscribers for free, but they also weren't going to pay the artists, 
And she says, no, you're not doing this. She says, take my stuff off of there. You can't do that. You know? And so she stood up for the whole rest of the industry, for all the other musicians out there. And she's done that several times. Yeah. Uh, Which also another thing for your listeners there, Spotify, if you can get your stuff on a playlist, that's really the way to get more uh, streams. And you can do that at the very beginning. But if you're going to release something, you have to do it and let them know beforehand so that they can look at it and see if they'll get you on a bit. But if you've already released it, it's no good. But after you've released it, you can still do it if you can find someone like I did who can actually get you a playlist and not one that's going to attract bots because that's another little trick they pull. You see these guys on Facebook advertising that sort of thing. You got to be very careful because a lot of times it's not real uh, people on there. Okay. But I had these people, really nice folks and uh, they got me on playlists. Like for example, the Billie Eilish thing, let's take that as an example. Mm. Now I'm not (laughs) 300 million and all that sort of thing because I've been in TikTok. Uh, But um, it, you know, it jumped it up 60,000 streams. I got right in the first month when I had zero. Yeah. So the playlists do make a, a, a big difference on, on something like Spotify. Yeah. But getting back to what we originally talked about, if, if you can get so a little familiar with at least how recording works on a computer, even if it's GarageBand, GarageBand is a very sophisticated program and you can, and it's very accessible. You can learn how to do just about anybody can or sit with somebody who does know and at least get an idea so that you can communicate with them as to what you want. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's real important. I used to be important to me in in recording studios back when it was still tape. I wanted to make sure that I could communicate with an engineer about what I wanted and to tell him in a sort of a general technical way, what I was looking for. And that way you're more liable to get what you want and you can communicate with the guy in the same level. It's real important to have that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. great yeah. And, and to your original question, you know, that I think there's unbelievable musicians out there as to whether they're being used in the same way. You might be you might have something there. I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. See, when I when I recorded like in the late 70s, when there was the heyday of the studio musician, you'd have these incredible guys would come in. And you could lay, give them the song. Didn't matter what the genre was. Didn't didn't matter in the least. I, I was sitting one time with Lee Rittenauer, who maybe folks probably wouldn't know, but he he was a a smooth jazz great. And he, he made a lot of money, but he was also a studio musician. And we were playing a, a flat out rock tune. And so I said, Lee, here's the tune, you know. And he's playing. And I said at the end of it, I just want you to go out with a solo. Now, the only time I'd heard Lee was playing jazz and and funk, that kind of stuff. He ripped a rock and roll solo at the end of that song. It was just jaw dropping. And this is the kind of stuff these guys would do uh, just on command. And you could put anything in front of them. And and as far as the music, they could read it. Yeah. Didn't matter. Right. Yeah. Now, a lot of these guys are on the road with people. Yeah, that, that's what studio musicians do now is they they go on the road because that's where the money is again. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, no, it, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you in the fact that like there is a lot more musicians out there. I, I feel like more than ever now, and I feel like a lot has to do with like social media or YouTube. They they, they call it YouTube University, right? Um, <laughs> but it's uh, but but yeah, no, there there is something about when you when you hear about these older musicians and and uh, that that were coming from you know when the music industry was very powerful and recording was a very powerful tool and you know everybody has access to recording equipment now but but at a time there was gatekeepers and the people who were like in these temples you know the, who could really play could really really play so it, it is it is such it, it is a it is strange how technology has allowed some musicians to sort of be lazy i guess i guess that's a bad word for it, but to be uh to not be so proficient in their instrument uh but still get a, a good quality recording or get something out that that sounds really good um and and i mean i i and personally i i used to think that was kind of you know bullshit you know i was like that's that sucks because you know people are out there learning their instrument right learning their craft but it, as I gotten older, I'm just like, whatever gets the song out, you know, whatever gets the music out, whatever gets this thing going, I, I feel like is a, is is positive, right? It's it's not a, it's not a bad thing, I guess, is what I'm saying. But but there's no, it, but it's go ahead. I think um, well, if we could take two examples now. Uh, you know, Billy and her and her brother yeah. record all those tunes. Uh, you know, on her first album, uh, or maybe even most of the second one was recorded in their bedroom there. Mm -hmm. And Phineas is very uh, adept at the whole uh, digital recording process and he uses logic. Right. And on some of those tracks for Billy and maybe some of you guys have listened to them talk about their recording process on YouTube. Uh, there's some great stuff actually, if you, you should look for that. But uh, he talks about some of those tracks, there's a hundred overdubs of her singing a particular thing. Wow. So that that thickens the sound of her voice. Mm -hmm. So it just sounds huge, you know. Yeah. And when she does that, like, for example, on Bad Guy, that hit she had off of her first album, on some of those tracks where she's doing the layered harmony, she had to sing exactly, and I mean exactly the way she sang the first one. So in other words, the breaths, the where she held out the word, it had to exactly fit wow. so you, you get this you know amazing sound you know and he's he's proficient he can play the stuff he needs to play mm. you know he can play guitar he plays it when they play live he plays guitar he plays keyboards i mean she only has two people behind her on stage yeah <laughs> great you know right and have a, there's a, another indie band that's called cigarettes after sex mm. and when i first heard this group I thought for sure the lead singer was a female. Well, there's there's only guys in the group. Moody, <laughs> uh, dark kind of stuff. Um, and the only criticism I would have is that every song pretty much sounds the same. Even some folks I know who really like the band will admit that. Yeah. But uh, here's the thing. Now, this is, this is a band that has 400 million streams, that sort of thing. Uh, they're from El Paso. Mm. So you see what the digital universe can do if mm. somebody picks you up on TikTok or something. Mm. All of a sudden, there you are. Now they've been on the they've done a tiny desk concert on NPR and all that sort of stuff. So 
you know, and they have millions, hundreds of millions of streams yeah. on the streaming surfaces. So that's kind of the landscape we have nowadays. Right, right. You don't need to necessarily be in Nashville or New York City or Los Angeles anymore to sort of get discovered or even to work. I mean, I, I know, I know some. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 amazing, you know. Absolutely. People still end up out here in New York, though, in London, and all that. Yeah, still, still want to come out here because because there's so many other people doing what they do and understand what they do, and so you have this camaraderie, right? And everybody wants to be in a community and, and be around other musicians and songwriters and all that. You you get inspiration from all of that. Mm. So that's another reason why. Yeah. Well, the weather's great out here. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I lived in San Diego for 13 years. I did not well, want to leave. You know. <laughs> I, I love San Diego. I love, you know, in LA, I had a love-hate relationship with LA, but towards the end, I loved LA, you know, just because it became something really cool over the years. Because when I first got there in about mid-2000s, um, working in San Diego, then and working sometimes up in L.A., it was just like, it felt very despondent. It didn't feel like it was a cohesive thing, at least in San Diego, towards, towards you know, leading up to the pandemic, it felt like there was a community, and you could kind of feel that in Los Angeles, where there was like a real community kind of coming out and supporting each other. Uh, you know, I know L.A. is much more vast um, community than San Diego, but, you know, a lot of the people travel back and forth and work the same scenes. So, like, I, I got to know some people and got to play some cool places uh, up there. But, uh, yeah, man, I, I thought L.A., um, before I left was just, it was, I mean, and I'm not sure what it is now. I haven't been out there in a while, but uh, the last time I was in Los Angeles, there was just homeless encampments under every fucking, um, every overpass. Well, you know because of the weather, you know, if I'm homeless, I'm not going to live in some place where it gets right. cold. Right? You just stay out of <laughs> Minneapolis if you're homeless, <laughs> <Yeah>. friends. <laughs> uh, um, can, I ask you, can I ask you something? Since you came up in the 2000s, since we're talking about songs and stuff, and the difference in the top 40, you came up in the time when rock was still happening. And of course, in the 90s is when the, the grunge thing happened with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all that. And then you had Incubus and uh, a, a lot of bands there still going on. Even Green Day and all that was still raging in the 2000s. And then it started to tail off as Napster and everything else started coming in. You know? Yeah. Well well, I think it was like, yeah, I, like you're saying, uh, I think Napster stuff came off. But but then there was sort of this emergence of that indie garage rock, you know, with um, uh, like the white, key, the white stripes, uh, the black key started coming up in that time in the in the 2000s. Uh, so you had this reemergence of like underground indie rock that ended up eventually becoming mainstream, like a lot of things do. You know, scenes sort of explode. So um, as as the as like the MTV generation sort of started f f fading out, um, because you know, like uh, like you were saying in the late two thousand or early two thousand, late nineties, even you still had some sort of rock, but it was still very much centered around MTV. And then as soon as the uh, as soon as the music was available for everybody and everybody was sharing the music and then YouTube kind of came on and blew the doors off of things as well, you know, you, you had this emergence of underground uh, artists who were sort of doing it on their own and really hitting the road hard and really, uh, and really you know, creating this 
new sound out of sort of that old feel, you know, like, like, especially like, uh, man, what's the name of that New York band who did, uh, oh my gosh, I wish I could remember, but they had a couple hits and I mean, Julian, uh, his name is Julian Casablanca is the lead singer of the band. Oh, the Strokes. Thank you. Yes. The Strokes was like one of those bands that sort of, sort of helped usher in. I, I feel like help usher in that, that indie sound that sort of came up. So when I was coming up in the, in the two thousands, that's where I gravitated because I, at one point I did feel like rock sort of died out really poorly you know like even Marilyn Manson was like rock is dead and he was like you know a rock star and um but but th there's always a reemergence, right there's always a new scene sort of coming up and and uh you know make it making a making a splash if you will yeah. well we'll see uh, well the, yeah the I mean even now but I mean now I feel like there's there's so much of everything now and it, like like how we were kind of talking about recording equipment uh, Spotify, the gatekeepers have sort of come down. And now the gatekeepers are like the playlist uh, curators, right? The people you sort of have to pay to get on these playlists. But, uh, but, but with TikTok, and even TikTok is curated now. You can pay, you can hire companies to get your songs to go viral. You can pay them to put your songs and work with uh, creators, uh, content creators, to get your music on their on their platform. And not, you know, maybe you'll get a viral hit. Um, I, I know, I know indie artists now who are like my. They're working with like a, a, a label, and they their label requires them to post all this stuff on social media. And now they're like, well, we need to get a viral video before we can release your album. And I'm like, oh my god, that's horrifying. I couldn't imagine my album being held mm -hmm. hostage until I got some sort of viral video that is basically manufactured at this point. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot up against people coming up, but I feel like there's so many avenues for people to choose and listen to from now, uh, you know, indie artists and, and electronic and hip hop. I mean, there's all these underground scenes that are bubbling up because uh, the internet will always prevail. No matter what the gatekeepers are doing, there's always an underground scene that is going to be available for everybody because the internet is, is, is it's, you know, it's omnipresent, right? It's everywhere. Everyone always has access to it for the most part and it, there's always going to be room and space for another sound another band another another you know scene to sort of come up whether or not they're on tiktok whether or not they're on spotify playlist or not uh it, it, there's always room for more so there's a lot of great rock bands and stuff coming up now that are just you know they're they're, they're making their way through they're, they're 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 doing the work they're Climbing the ladder, I suppose, but yeah, it's uh. It's well, they, they, but they they don't have the opportunity to compete uh, for a hit record on the top forty like they used to. Right, and you don't. And I think one of the reasons that classic rock, for example, that people still listen to all that stuff is because of the quality of the songs. Yeah. And so I, I heard Cheryl Crow talking about this the other day. Um, that uh, you know that traditional kind of songwriting is pretty hard to ignore, even over a long period of time. I mean, that Beatle thing that came out that uh, Peter Jackson did—that eight hours of the, you know, the Beatles there in that their last recording sessions and stuff. I mean, that was watched by hundreds of millions of people, you yeah. know, because they still there's still a magic there. And of course, this the the song. For example, I used to have vocal students. And a lot of them were very young, 
And uh, and these are some that weren't brainwashed by their parents uh, with Beatle music, you know, when they were younger. So uh, they they didn't know the Beatles all that well. But I would have them sing uh, Beatles songs, and they would always say how much fun they were to sing. And, and of course, they realized it's because of the quality of the songwriting yeah. was why they were so easy to sing. You know, so but I think there's still going to be people writing. Uh, great songs and want to do that it's just uh, the outlet for it is going to be kind of murky because it's so spread out yeah and so vast and nowadays the, and and i think you know it, it's so saturated in that and and i feel like what you know i i you know i'm not trying to tell people to lower their standards of success but like there is a different ideal of success now you have a lot of these artists uh, I mean, I see it all the time on like these Facebook ads where they're just like, hey, you can make money off your music. Um, there's always an audience for you. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be, you know, on, you know, on the cover Rolling Stone, whatever that means anymore, because Rolling Stone, all these outlets have sort of become starting to become sort of irre- irrelevant because, uh, you know, social media, TikTok, and it's so easily accessible. The internet, of course, the internet, you know, sort of watered down a lot of stuff and, and kind of leveled the playing field. But it, it, I feel like people can find success in the music, find their audience. Uh, but, but I don't know if you know being Justin Bieber or Olivia Rodriguez is is the absolute end all be all for now for people now. You know, I mean, like that is a goal for I'm sure for everybody who gets into this is they want some sort of success and and reaching their music reaching a, a massive audience. But what's happening now is this sort of this movement where it's like, well, you can just make a living and make a life with what you create. And I feel like that is, uh, you know, a, a sort of this other attainable goal that's been allowed through the internet and stuff. So yeah, I, you know, having widespread success throughout all these, you know, MTV or whatever, these, you know, being on these huge uh, festivals and having the success of Justin Bieber, it, you know, it's still something that people want, but I feel like people are starting to gravitate to the idea of just living off their art. And I know that's sort of what I do. And, and Twitch is a great example of that. You can you find all these people on this platform who are musicians who are who are um, making a living off of just streaming from their living from their bedrooms. You know, I'm in my bedroom right now with a green screen behind me, and I'm not making a living off this at this level. Uh, but uh, but there are musicians and there are people on this platform who are making a living off of just streaming music, streaming their own original music. Like my wife just she today she just played a whole set of original music had you know had like thirty people in there hanging out and and just you know like you can you can sort of make this new way where you can find a living through it and it's, it's not going to be massive success and I don't even think she wants like that kind of attention anymore but but to be able to live off of what you create is I think has been, become uh, sort of a new widespread goal. Of course, there's always going to be people who want to be the next Justin Bieber, but you know, I, I, it, it's it's a, it's possible just to make a living and and live your life and be an artist and and yeah, yeah that's I, good uh, enough I, I agree, for some. I agree with that totally. I mean, uh, people they need to get out and play. That's for sure. I mean, uh, in the case of like your wife, if you're a solo artist, a lot of people are doing those home concerts where they mm-hmm. there's even a website where that'll kind of book you for that kind of yeah. stuff. Go to people's houses and they charge admission uh, to play. Yeah. I'm sure you're aware of that. Oh yeah. There's but there's also um, 
kind of the people I'm talking about um, were more interested not in being Justin Bieber, but in achieving something uh, meaningful and spectacular almost with the music. Yeah. And you had famous musicians, uh, as a, which you don't really have now. You don't really have that. Right. You don't have famous musicians. You don't have the average music lover who knows who's playing on some of these sessions and and people like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and all those guitar gods from the previous decades, you don't really have that kind of stuff anymore. That's that's that is missing. Yeah, I, yeah, I could see that, and, and, and it's probably because there's a widespread of talent out there now that that. These well, it's kids also are, the video element of it, where it's know. it's it's very much a visual medium, and so yeah. when you're talking about being a performer, you've got to really. <laughs> you have to really have a whole show in front of you there. I mean, yeah. even someone like Taylor Swift, she writes folky kind of pop country songs, but she goes out there with a tour that needs like 12 semis to carry yeah. all this stuff. Right. You, know? and you really have to have an enormous show to go on. Although Ed Sheeran, who has the most streamed song of anybody for a while there, he was going out on the road with him and a guitar. Now imagine he could fill Madison Square Garden and it's just him. The overhead is beautiful. <laughs> All the money. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, what a gig. <laughs> yeah, for you sure. Know? For sure. I've seen him a couple of times with a band, but I mean, he doesn't need anything. He just walks up there and plays, yeah. you know? Yeah. Man. And he's got this little tiny guitar. Right? <laughs> Yes. It's just amazing. Absolutely. You know, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, Billy Iris, the same thing, you know. Three and and Olivia, she carries this band of women. Yeah. And they're a hard rock band. They're really good. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So people are doing it the old way. And I think some of those people, like Olivia Rodrigo, she's a songwriter. I think she sees herself as a songwriter. She doesn't, she wants to be known for that. Yeah. So she's kind of old school in that way, you right. know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I don't, I don't begrudge anybody, anything that they're trying to achieve. It's like people will say, for example, someone like, um, well, let's say Britney Spears. Say, well, how can she, and she's not talented, blah, 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 you know? Well, she is talented in certain areas and she did enough to bang on doors and to put herself out there over and over and over again, put herself on the line. She deserves it. And so that's why I don't, I'm for anybody who can make it in the music business or the artistic. If you if you found a way to do it, then you deserve it. You know, you've you've done the job, and, you, and that's the thing for most people and for your audience. There is you got to show up. That's the first thing you got to do. Absolutely, you got to write, you got to sing, you got to play, you got to get yourself out there. You, you know, whether it's online or it's in person, that's the most important thing. You got to show up. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it, it that's the. That's like half the battle almost. I mean, having talent really helps, but I mean, a lot of times you see people sort of falling into roles that just, it's because they just kept coming back and then and, and they were there and they're consistent and they were available and, and they were, you know, they, 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 they could step into that role. And it, you know, th there's a lot to be said about that. I think Woody Allen had some kind of quote about that, <laughs> but you know, Woody <laughs> Allen, that guy. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I, There's a whole other 
story there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. He's a ta- he's actually a really talented musician too, which is really oh, interesting. Yeah, he, he plays clarinet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I really, I really, I mean, his band was is really is really cool. I, I dig his band, but you know, <laughs> um, I, I had some questions from the chat that I'm I'm forgetting to ask here. Uh, are you left-handed? No. Okay. And then what? And by, the way, by the way, if you're trying to play guitar and you're left-handed and you haven't started yet, play right-handed. Mm. What, because why? you won't have trouble and all the diagrams and everything else are mm. written for right-handed people. If you want to go buy a nice guitar, there's way more right-handed guitars than there are left-handed guitars. Yeah. In fact, you maybe see one or two left-handed guitars. It's just if you haven't started yet, don't switch to right-handed and play that way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because either way, when you're starting guitar, it, it just feels like a foreign object in your hand. So like whether or not you're righty or a lefty, you're going to, it's going to just be awkward anyways at first. So it's like, you might as well just go with it. Just, just, just go with that awkward lean in and get at it. I, I would definitely agree with that. That's, that's, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, we had another question here is, uh, do you, uh, do you, do you listen to vinyl? Do you still listen to vinyl? And then if so, what, what's your favorite vinyl to listen to? Uh, I don't listen to vinyl and it's not because I don't like it. I, I just, you know, to be honest with you, the only time I listen to music is in my car. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So I still have a CD player in my car, but, you know, I, I don't listen uh, to vinyl because it requires a lot of equipment. I have a buddy, for example, that's, um, he has one of those $18,000 turntables, you know, the max or <laughs> he, whatever. He buys that vinyl. That's real thick. It's, you know, supposedly, yeah, you know what I'm saying? 180 and grams. I go over there and I, I really enjoy, uh, listening uh, to the vinyl stuff and believe me i do miss sitting with musician friends and stuff and we get the, like a new album of somebody we really wanted to hear and you're sitting there after a gig at two o'clock in the morning and putting the album on the record player and listening i, I still have incredibly fond memories of that and wish i could do it again and wish you could sit there with the album cover and see who played on it and who wrote this and that and everything else they put on there you know i I miss all of that a lot. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's great. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a fan of vinyl. I, I, my dad was huge into vinyl. And so I just sort of picked that up and just kept. So I, 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 I don't have $18,000 equipment, but, you know, <laughs> I, I did invest some money into some nice equipment to listen to it because I, for that exact reason is that it's just tactile. You can hold it. You can look at it. Whereas if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, it's just some digital signal and then this little picture that comes with the signal. And it's like, you know, there, I, I absolutely love Spotify. Not that I'm sitting here going to crap on Spotify because I, I think Spotify and all these different streaming services are amazing um, because I, I love the fact that I can just go and, and, you know, listen to anything on demand. But then the, I also like the fact that when I'm going to listen to music and really intently listen to music, that I can put something on, that I can look at the, the album cover, look at the artwork, and, and really appreciate the sound. And I, I love the sound of that uh, of vinyl and stuff, too. And so there, there's a whole ritual to it, and, and it's just it feels good and reminds me of my, my younger days of, of, you know, jamming out with my, my dad or, or, or even in my early 20s because I always 
always sort of had a, a record player on hand. So it, it's just it's just one of those things, man. I, I I just really dig it, the nostalgia of it all. But yeah, no, I, I feel you on the 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 whole thing. There's a, there's a lot that goes into it as well. So I, I feel you. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a it's a financial commitment and it's um, you know space in your place space, and all that kind yes. of stuff. It's just something I I haven't done, but I, I certainly. Uh, respect it and admire it and i think it's wonderful that vinyl's coming back you know mm. um it's one fossil fuel that i guess we can <laughs> because you know it takes oil to make yeah. vinyl right, right. So, <laughs> that's yeah. true i never thought about that but yeah you're absolutely you know, right does. yeah fact, when, I, when i was an artist at motown <laughs> it was in the late 70s and this was after the, the 70s where the rock and roll excess was at its absolute peak <laughs> and elders were selling like 10 million records and everything else it was a wonderful time but right after that was the iranian oil crisis which where we had the first kind of uh stoppage of oil supplies and you had lines and gas stations yeah. and all that kind of stuff and i lost a deal there because of it because they were cutting back and they weren't signing any new artists. I mean, I'd been there for a while, but they were also signing me to a solo deal, and I lost it because of all that. Wow. They were cutting. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really something. So Wow, uh, just because they had to cut corners. And so, like, you oh, just... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything was real. Well, it was kind of like when you... Almost like when we went into the pandemic, where you felt this shroud over everything. Mm, yeah. And it took a while for it to come back. In fact, that, that would have been late 70s so it didn't really and that was also okay that was also the disco era for your audience there which when you're playing live music unless you played in a band that played exactly the way the record was and you played only disco music you had a hard time working and it wasn't until the whole new wave punk thing started that original music and stuff came back to the clubs you could go down to the whiskey for example and and see bands again and it was really great that it all came back like that and that's where the police happened and elvis costello and the runaways and the go-go's and all this stuff you yeah know? Uh, but for a while there it was it was rough yeah, it was tough yeah well that that's interesting can you can you sort of talk about your time at motown and and then sort of leading up to you know what, what you just told us yeah um actually i my first uh, go around with motown was in the middle 60s when I was 19, I guess. Um, I had a band together and uh, we, uh, there was a manager in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio, and he just happened to know a producer from Motown, or he thought he was a producer. Actually, his claim to fame was really being the wife of Mary Wells, who was a, a Motown artist who had lots of hits. And uh, anyway, so he took us up to this white band. We looked like the Beach Boys. And he took us up to Detroit to, to record the studio there. And he managed to, to hire the Funk Brothers, which was the Motown band that recorded all those hits. Yeah. But he had them over to this other studio and he paid them under the table. Now, see, they were contract players. So if Barry Gordy would have found out. He probably would have shot them all. <laughs> but, you know, so... It, it, but it, it was a full band with horns. Uh, I remember there was three uh, black women that came in to, to augment the background parts we were doing. And one of the women had a baby in her arm breastfeeding. And she was reading the chart at the same time. I mean, wow. it was unbelievable. It was an amazing experience. And it was the kind of place where we had to be taken to a, 
a lunch counter to eat lunch because this was where the Detroit riots happened two years later. It was the, you know, the, the minority section of town, shall we put it? Yeah. And, uh, it was pretty rough there. Uh, but it, it was an education like no other. It was amazing to be with those men and they were great to us. You know, we were just these white kids and they were, they were the kind of guys that would play all day in the studios and then they would play their music in what they called blind pigs, which were these nightclubs that would stay open until five in the morning. And then they'd play jazz and stuff until the sun came up. And wow. it was back another day doing the same thing again, you know. They wear the shark skin suits and everything else. It was, yeah. it was unbelievable. Yeah. And then when I finally came out to California, I met this uh, couple of people who were songwriters and um, they had gotten a songwriting deal at Motown and they got me in there. And the, the president of Motown at the time was Suzanne DePass, who was still a, a big wig. And she uh, was very kind to me. And she signed me to a, an artist and a, uh, a songwriting thing there. And right then, a buddy of mine got a song that was recorded by Diana Ross. So that was a huge deal, of course. And it became the title track to the album. And so it was, a, we got another song recorded by Rare Earth. It was a group that had three or four hits there. It was a white group, actually. And uh, so I was in the studios there all the time. I was singing on other stuff, and playing guitar and all that. And that's also when I uh, started working on the road with Paul Williams, who's still writing songs. Mm. Paul is the one who uh, won an Oscar for Evergreen with Barbara Streisand and mm. has gotten Grammys. And in fact... <laughs> A few years ago, I'm sure your listeners don't know who Daft Punk is, the French uh, dance group. Absolutely. Somehow or another, Paul, <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but he wrote the lyrics and maybe some of the melody to uh, one or two of the songs on that last album they did, which was so successful. Yeah. And I remember seeing him accept the Grammy Award that Daft Punk got. And the guys were up there with those helmets on and everything else. And there was little Paul. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He, he just, you know, he had a, his with the carpenters back then. I mean, he had, he had a ton of stuff and, you know, he was an actor and everything else. So that all happened at the same time. But um, Motown moved, you see, from the, the famous uh, Hitsville, USA house on Grand Boulevard in Detroit. Yeah. And then Barry decided to move everything out to Hollywood, but he didn't take the musicians with him. Wow. You start people out here, you know. Mm -hmm. So when I was there in, in Hollywood, this was when uh, Brick House, you know, Lionel Richie was when What's Going On with Marvin Gaye, yeah. you know, and I met all those people. And uh, Smokey Robinson, for one, was one of the nicest people you'll ever want to meet. Oh, he and looks for nice. You, for you songwriters, there is, there's a songwriter. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote a ton of, it's not only for the miracles, but for everybody else. He wrote My Girl for My, Temptation. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, Wonderful guy. Down. Really, really great. He looks nice. He has those nice eyes, those kind eyes. <laughs> everybody loves his eyes. No, and he still, he, still, he still uses, he calls everybody man. You know, he's, he's just hip. He's just a great dude. I love Really him. nice person. Very, yeah, I, I'm, I was, really something. And it's interesting to see the whole dynamic there in Motown. You know, it's obviously a legendary place. You know? Absolutely. But more for what they did in Detroit than for, yeah, although... You know, when Stevie Wonder did all that, that four albums in a row there that were just, I think he won the Grammy for best album like three times in a row for, you know, yeah. that all happened when it was out here in, in California. Yeah. So when he, he finally made his 
move of independence. You know, he said, look, I'm going to do what I want and, and you have to do that or I'm not signing here anymore. And that's how he, he managed to do it. Yeah. He stood up. But of course, he's Stevie Wonder. <laughs> so, yeah, Stevie yeah, Wonder can do that. You're not going to do you're nobody. <laughs> um, I, I, so I was just curious. Then, so so you wrote the songs with uh, with Peter that like Evergreen. No, no, no uh, uh, I, I didn't write with Paul Williams. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Paul. Vocal arranging, and I played guitar some for his touring band. I got you. I got you. Uh, them on the Muppets movie, which was a big success for him. He wrote a lot of that stuff in that movie. So, uh, but uh, no, I just wrote with a buddy of mine that the Diana Ross tune. Yeah. I, I, I've I've really been a solo writer. I, I don't really enjoy collaborating all that much. Why not? Um, because I like writing melody and lyrics both. Mm. I guess would be one answer. Uh, I just feel more comfortable. I, I work better by myself. It's just you know, it's not. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing to collaborate with people, and I've done it. Uh, it's just, for me, just personally, it's worked out better to be a solo person yeah. as far as the songwriting is concerned. Now, when I get with a band, and I, I would say this to songwriters or, or recording artists in general, um, if you've got musicians that are good players and you like working with them, then the way you make it so that they feel the same way is to involve them in the process. In other words, if you've got arrangements, fine, but see what each musician adds to it, for example. Mm. And so then you're involving them in the creation of the music itself. And you're, of course, liable to get some great ideas from them, right? Absolutely. And so when you're putting your stuff together, see, then they start to feel like they're involved in it, like they have a stake in it, besides the fact that you're paying them to play or help whatever arrangement you might have. So I think it's real important when you're playing with other musicians is to make them feel like they're involved in the arranging and the process and the music making that you're trying to do. Mm. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Like me and my wife has put together several different iterations of a band uh, surrounding her music and our music. And and that was one thing that we were always we found success in is like, hey, you know, like here's the music, here's the chords, and you know, here's the feel. But like, you know, bring your parts to the table. You know, like that we want we want your opinion. We want, you know, we want your feedback. At the end of the day, we made the decisions that you know, yes or no. But it, but you know, having people involved, having people, and even you know, if they had songs, the right to you know, like involving that as well. Uh, it really did bring the band together. So, like, just I, I've seen that in action, and that's that's probably one of the better ways to do it. But then, you know, there's nothing wrong with just being like, "Listen, you're hired band. You do what I tell you, we're, and then we're going because I'm paying you to." So, you know, which I've been well, in that, that would be the James Brown approach. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh man, James Brown. That that guy. I, I love James Brown, but man, that guy well, was about his business. Please. Yeah. That that is the greatest. That was the most exciting show I've ever seen. If you could see James Brown in the '60s live, I bet it was, was nothing like it, even to this day. And now, of course, you have all the computer lights and the huge sets and everything else. And he would come out with just his band and a microphone and a spotlight, and it was nuts. Yeah. It was absolutely nuts. And of course, he was the uh, innovator of funk music. Yes. And there's no doubt about that. And just the way he performs, if you can see stuff on uh, YouTube of him performing, if you haven't done that, folks that are listening to this, I would highly recommend it. You can see where Michael Jackson got 
you know, the inspiration for what he did. Prince, the same thing. Absolutely. You know? uh, in, in fact, in all of us and what we listen to, you know, I've always tried, I always, people always ask me what I like. And, and I always say, well, I like a lot of different stuff, but very little of every <laughs> of everything. And I would say, for example, the, the two things that I can think of where I was listening in my car and had to literally drive off the side of the road to stop my car to listen to it was Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown and Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, which still sounds like it's from outer space. Absolutely. No, it's all these years later. You know, it's a monumental piece of work, you know. Uh, but they sound a whole lot different, those two records, you know. Right. <clears throat> but they influenced me, both of them, a great deal. A great deal, yeah. you know. So um, you, you can find all sorts of things to give you inspiration. That's for certain. Yeah. And it's a good idea to to listen wide and far, right? Yeah. Do, do you uh do, 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 so like, you know, writer's block is a thing for some musicians, writers too, and you're a writer and, you know, you write music, you write lyrics and stuff. Is it have you ever dealt with uh writer's block before or and if so, how did you get past it? Um I don't I don't really have writer's block. I, there's just times to write because I want to record, I want to do stuff. Um, but, I, but it doesn't mean that, for example, lyrics take me a lot longer than, than writing music, uh, only because I want my lyrics to mean something. I'm not looking to write the same kind of love song over and over and over again, which, of course, works time and again for people, you know. Mm. I just, um, it's just something I, I want my lyrics to be every bit as good as the music is. And so I spend a lot of time on it. So they do take a lot of time. And for lyric writers, by the way, a little tip, <clears throat> I would suggest getting a rhyming dictionary and you can get one right online. Hmm. There's one called Rhymer, for example, that's for free because it can give you ideas for lines that you wouldn't have thought of if you hadn't seen that. Hmm. I mean, you can think of certain things like if you have a fear rhyme, you got cheer, deer, here, you can think of those. But then you look at a rhyming dictionary and you see a whole raft of others. Yeah. You can really choice things that will give you ideas for another line that's much more pithy than what you were thinking about. And it really helps out a lot. So that's a little lyric tip there. But I mean, when it comes to writing the music, I don't care who it is. It's still a matter of sitting with your instruments, whatever it is, and noodling, right? I mean, <laughs> that's essentially what you're doing. You're mm. sitting down again and okay, and fool around with this, fool around with that, and you start to sing a little bit. And it's that same process, yeah. the same one. And, and then I, I remember a, a great line from Elton John that somebody asked him what his favorite song of his was. Hmm. And he said, the one I'm writing now. And yeah. I thought that was so on the money. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, that, Yeah, as exactly. it should be. It should be like that, right? That's, yeah, that's how it should be. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was so, it was just so right on the money. It was hilarious, you know. Yeah, the absolutely. one I'm right now, you know. Yeah, and people may not think that's that's your best song, but nevertheless, that's that's the process that you enjoy. If yeah. you don't like the process, then eh, why do it? <laughs> yeah, it's not for you. It's just, it's just gonna be a chore, right? It's just, uh, yeah. you have to write a song again, you know. And, and if it's, it's a chore, then. Uh, they're too hard to a good song is too hard to write you know? yeah yeah do you, do you ever i mean when you look at prolific hit makers like uh like the beatles or something you know that you know and there's that classic interview where they're talking about or 
where where John Lennon's talking to Paul McCartney. They're like, let's write a swimming pool or something. You know, it's, it's something around yeah. that. It's like, do, do, I'm wondering if that ever was a chore for them to just be because, like, when you hear them talk about what inspired their songs, it does sort of break down into very simplistic ideas, and they're just like, well, you know, I was just passing a laundromat and I just saw somebody's name on there, like Eleanor Rigby or something, and they're like, so I was just like, I wonder what this woman's like. I'm wondering if there was ever a chore for them after a certain amount of time. Or, or, I mean, I, I can imagine that it was a chore because they had to deal with each other's, you know, egos and 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 their attitudes. But I, I'm I, I'm just wondering if it ever would have been a chore for them to to sit down and write hits, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. I mean, of course, as they went along, they started writing more on their own. Yeah. You know, and then you know, obviously, a song like Eleanor Rigby is a Paul McCartney song, and a song like sorry. Um, what Strawberry Fields would be more like a John Lennon song, right. Norwegian Wood or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, the other one may have contributed things to that. But I think early on, they probably were writing pretty much together and mm -hmm. really turning them out. Yeah. I mean, it, it is hard to write a great song, mm -hmm. I'm sure. I mean, Paul seems to, to write constantly. Yeah. And then other people like that maybe don't write as constantly. That they, they wait for the time when they need to write an album the way they used to do it. You know, yes. they'd wait till that time came. They'd done some touring. They'd take some time off with the family or a loved one or something like that. And then it's time to write the next record. Yeah. Right. And then, so that's when they start to do that. Other people, I think, are probably writing all the time in one mm. form or another. Yeah. And, and if you can find the name on a store that gives you an idea for a song, go at it, you know, or somebody says something, you hear a conversation and it gives you an idea. I know people that keep uh, books with the list of titles, mm. just cool titles, yeah. you know, and for God's sake, if you're going to write a love song, try to write, go at it from a different way, you know, try to find an incident or something that illustrates an idea about whatever you're trying to say about love or a love affair or something, because yeah. otherwise, and there's just, and there's still, and there's plenty of hit records still right now that use the same lines that are regurgitated over and over and over again. There still are all the time. Baby, baby, baby. <laughs> yeah. You listen to lines of these songs and they're always the same. Yeah. And yet people relate to them and they, listen, they sing them along, they're riding in the car. Yeah. So I can't say that it's the wrong uh, tactic to use, but... Right. If you want to really write something good and that that's, sounds like you, then you got to go that extra mile. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, um, Marianne uh, wrote in the chat, Danny Ray, the legendary MC and Cape Man for James Brown. The estate, uh, the estate said in a statement, Ray worked with G Brown from 1960 until the music legend's death in, on Christmas Day 2006. He became famous for draping a cape over Brown at the end of his signature tune, Please, Please, Please. Uh, that's, some, that's, some great, uh, that's some great bit of trivia there. I, oh, I, yeah, that's I, absolutely true. She's absolutely right about that. I love you, yeah. you love me, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, uh, take take away the word baby from Ashanti's career. She has no career. <laughs> 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 Listen, baby's a great name. Hey, it's great. You know, it's, a, it's your pet name. It, it can be everything, so whatever. Well, if you, you, know, if you, if you listen, um, for example, one of my, my, bu my buddies, a good player, uh, but he was moaning and groaning. A lot of my generation, they sound like their parents. He's going on and on about, you know, 
Olivia Rodrigo and some of these young uh, writers and stuff and comparing those to the Beatles. And I said to him, I said, look, when the Beatles first hits came, what were they? We're talking about, I want to hold your hand. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love me do. Okay. And Olivia Rodrigo's first song was Driver's License, which was a pretty good slice of she found a way to talk about heartbreak in a pretty unique little way there. And she was only 18 when she wrote that. And they were writing those songs when they were early 20s. Mm. So what are you telling me here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. It, it's just I mean, however it gets me, It's just, and, and watch for this. As you guys get older, you'll become your parents. <laughs> you got, I've already, you got, I already have. Oh. I already, I just like, can you keep it down? <laughs> can you guys just stop? Looking, I just need silence. It's like, I live in an apartment building and people are like stomping around upstairs. I'm like, these sons of bitches over here. Like, I can't, I can't concentrate over here. Uh, Naders wants to know if you've ever met Chuck Berry. No, I have. I never met Chuck Berry. I saw him. Uh, the interesting thing about Chuck Berry, if you didn't know, uh, uh, the person who asked the question, is that he was one guy who always, he never carried a band he, you always had to, whatever town he was in, the local musicians union had to put a band together for him. Oh, really? Yeah. And and as a matter of fact, in the real, there's a really good Chuck Berry documentary called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll that Keith Richards had a hand in putting together. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen talks about being in one of these bands to back Chuck Berry. And he said, we always played all those songs like, Johnny Be Good in the key of A because that's a good guitar key, right? Mm. Well, Chuck Berry played that song in B flat. <laughs> so, they were starting to play the song because you just had to know the song. Just Chuck just assumed you know my songs. Yeah. And they're playing a half step off. Right. <laughs> they're playing the song, you know? Yeah. Because Chuck Berry actually grew up, he was a little older than the other rock people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis, even Little Richard. Uh, so he was a little older. So he came up in the big band era. And, and when you were talking about T-Bone Walker, uh, blues kind of blues guys, so it was more of a jazz thing. And they played a lot of blues in horn keys, which would be B flat. Yeah. See? Yeah. So that's what he was playing when he played those songs. <laughs> yeah. But Chuck, you know, Chuck Berry, I mean, he sort of laid down the law about rock and roll guitar. Absolutely. I mean, what, what can you say about that? You know, yeah. rock and roll at that time was was sort of a jump blues. We used to call it back then. And, and so that's how rock and roll evolved. It evolved the blues. And then you had this you had this insistent beat. Right. Yeah. Rocking. And that's how rock and roll started. And then, of course, the uh, the way it was performed was also the other aspect of it. You know, yeah. it's really great stuff. I mean, if you, to me. If you heard Little Richard doing Lucille or something on the radio right now, or Elvis singing Hound Dog, you would go, "Whoa, what is that?" <laughs> yeah, it's just like, "Wow, what is that?" You know, if if you're not got your ears totally closed, you need to hear, you know, electronic keyboard or something like that. But it's just amazing stuff, you know. But yeah. no, I, I never, I, just, I saw him live. And in fact, I saw him at the Fillmore during that Summer of Love in, in San Francisco. Oh, man. And Steve Miller's band backed him. So that was a real treat. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, the Chuck, Chuck Berry, man, like he he definitely changed the changed the game and, and, and brought it to the forefront, brought rock and roll to the forefront. 
I don't know what his problem is, but man, he he definitely went off the went off the rails towards the end there when he was getting caught with all those. The, I think I think uh, that happened with him. When he was remember he was uh, he was indicted for uh, the Man Act for transporting a minor across state lines. That was back when he was uh, big. That was in the fifties. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So wow. He was, well, and then Jerry Lee Lewis married his thirteen-year-old cousin. cousin. Yeah. Richard was a nut. I met that guy, and he was insane. Little Richard? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, I, I had a buddy who lived next door to me in Hollywood one, uh, way back, and and uh, he was friends with, with Richard's brother. And uh, so Danny wanted to get some pot one time, and so Richard was over there, and so he said, ah, come with me. So I, they drive down to South Central Los Angeles, <laughs> and he leaves Danny in the car in the neighborhood to go into somebody's house. He said he's never been so terrified in his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. Unbelievable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, music. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, not to not to put the stigma of 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 of, of mental illness on musicians because it's widespread, but there is something about there is something about a spirit of of musicians or at least the certain type of musicians that are just. I mean, it's wild. I, I don't. I'm not sure completely where that comes from. Maybe it's just unfettered access to um, to do everything once you hit a certain point in your life. And you, and, I mean, you think about like the '70s and, and Led Zeppelin and what they were doing, and, and like you know, breaking, uh, uh, smashing up hotel rooms and stuff. There's there's something that's something about rock and roll that that the whole lifestyle that's just uh, really they just go out there. I don't know if it's just unfettered access to excess or you know money, and I don't know, man. It, it's royalty uh, almost. Probably still true. To, it's probably I'm sure it's still true today to an extent. Yeah. I mean, somebody like uh, if you're talking about the performance aspect of it, you, when you talk about Little Richard, he he was doing that not because of anything he was taking. It just that was something that evolved out of his music and the way he wanted to perform. I mean, well, how can you explain that? How can you explain what Elvis did with combining country, you know, with the blues, which yeah. is essentially what he did because he liked black gospel music, you know. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis banging on the piano. And it, it was a sort of a tradition, even if you want to go back to circus type stuff way back in the early part of the 20th century, you can go all the way through and see these people. They were just amazing performers and it came out and that's the way they performed. And so then that's evolved so that when, by the time you got to the late sixties and you had all those guitar bands and everybody, I mean, how do you explain Jimi Hendrix? You know, yeah. he was, he played for little Richard. He played for little Richard and his band. He did. Yeah. He played Joey D and the Starlighters. You were a group that became famous because of the, the famous twist craze back then. Mm. And he played with them. So he was a, a nightclub musician. And so how do you explain his use of volume and feedback and all of that? And then of course, the way he dressed and everything. I mean, he had so much charisma on a stage. It was unbelievable. You know? Yeah, I mean, I explain that, but it was just the way he performed, and he he didn't need drugs to do that. I think the drugs came later. Yeah, and it becomes part of the lifestyle, and it becomes part of the image, you know. Mm. And every, people get lost in it. Yeah, and the worst the worst time for musicians was the whole cocaine thing. Yeah, that was off. That was awful. It was really awful. Was it the eighties, late seventies, the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. The I hated the eighties. <laughs> <Spy. laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the only band I liked during the '80s was The Police. Ah, uh, yeah. You didn't like any of the 
very good. Very you know, good band. You didn't like uh, any of the new wave stuff or like, you know. Oh, no, I did. I, I absolutely, I did. And I went, even some of the bands that I was, yeah, I still went to see it because it was just so nice to see original bands playing mm, again. Yeah. It was just really great. I mean, I wasn't a fan of the Go-Go's, but I went and saw them and I enjoyed oh, myself. The Go-Go's are awesome. They're having a great time, you know, and doing their thing. I, I, I thought it was great, you know. Yeah. I, I really did. I, I had a marvelous time during all that. I was I wasn't crazy about punk music either, but mm. I, I loved the energy of it. And there were even some bands. I, there was a band called, um, oh God, they were in Washington D.C. and they did a song called Ape Drape, which was about the the uh, mullet haircuts. You know, <laughs> the song was hilarious. <laughs> The Vandals, the Vandals, the Vandals. that's what, yeah, the Vandals. Yeah. And, and, and they had, there wasn't a lot of musicianship in punk bands, but that band had a really good guitar player. He could mm. play. Yeah. And there was a black punk group I like called Bad Brains. Bad they Brains another, is so good. Yeah. 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 Another another one. in Fugazi, another Fugazi. Washington State. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really good band there. So, oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, was, it, was Fugazi, that's Rollins, right? Is that Was that Rollins' band? No, no. Rollins was Black Flag. Black Flag. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah, that was out. He, he was out here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was the L.A. punk scene. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He, no, the, the 80s, I, you know, was something when I when I was younger, I, I thought was just stupid. But like, as I've gotten older, I just I absolutely love what, what happened in that. I mean, I mean, you know, Prince came to prominence in the 80s and he, he kind of developed. He took on a lot of those sounds, a lot of those those instruments that defined uh, those sounds in the 80s, you know, like, I, I just absolutely love it. But it's interesting how every generation, it's like, uh, it's hard to, like, wrap your head around it, right? Like, you were saying, like, how if you were to see Elvis Presley back in the day sort of, you know, moving his hips around and stuff, I can imagine as a parent seeing that and coming from, <coughs> you know, their generation being like, "What? look at this guy. He just wants to bang all our daughters and stuff. You know, like, this guy is the devil's too." But then when I hear, you know, as we're get, as I'm getting older, I'm hearing what like, isn't is it Cardi B or Nicki Minaj who they have this song called WAP, you know, and it's just like WAP WAP bucket and a mop where they're talking about how wet their vaginas are, and I'm just like, this is what kids are listening to, and and then and then again, I've turned into my parents, so it's it's just interesting how every generation has to sort of um, ease into the music or just completely reject it. Um, yeah, I, in the case you're talking about there, I, I think there's a difference. I mean, Elvis' <laughs> songs never, or any of those guys, their songs weren't like that. You know, about, about the only thing they ever said was ball tonight or something. You know, and yeah. half the kids didn't even know what that meant. You know, I mean, it's much, oh, obviously knew. much more for society now. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're exposed to so much stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. All of us, for that matter, you know. Absolutely. So it just depends on what you want to what you want to have to say. I mean, I, I don't know for me, I don't want to waste my time talking about stuff like that. I could, I mean, all of us could, right. but it's just not a subject matter that just interests me very much. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would never sit there and write lyrics about how, how drippy my that's, penis is. That's what is. I mean. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, you talk about the 80s and cocaine and stuff and you living through all this. Was there ever a period of time where you sort of uh, maybe lost control and was hooked on substances or, or have you ever were you always sort of straight and narrow? Uh, no, uh, that uh, there was about a three year period in the 80s where I went bankrupt and, and my career uh, was over with and uh yeah, it was it was horrible, and I 
most of those for me, you know, I, I was alone through all of that. Nobody really saw me go through that. Hmm. So I was lucky in that sense, but I had to pick myself back up from ground zero. Wow. And so it was, and I felt lucky because a lot of other people either died or it was much worse. Yeah. Um, so, and it was, cocaine was something that was never enjoyable either. I mean, pot is fun. Yeah. I mean, psychedelics can be fun, you know, they can also be scary, but they can yeah. be fun. But uh, Coke was, and if you're around much people who are doing it, you're all boring and all, everybody wants to talk at once. And it's just, uh, it's horrible stuff. It's just really awful. It really it just, is. It's everything. No. But you talked about Prince during the 80s there. His best album, in, in my humble opinion, was made during that. It was called Sign of the Times. Hmm. It's, a, it's a double album. And uh, that to me was the zenith of his creativity in the recording studio. That that was really something. I think that was an amazing record, really. And uh, of course, he's always been a great performer. I actually saw him um, uh, about a year before he died here because he did a whole series of concerts in Los Angeles where he it was sort of like a residency at the Forum. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, and he would play there two nights a weekend and then he'd play two nights the next weekend, stuff like that. So I finally got a chance to see him play and it was great. He was, band was, of course, a killer. And, yeah. It was wonderful. He, he's amazing. Uh, you know, I actually was on a podcast last night where they asked me, it was like, hey, um, you know, I know Prince was a multi-instrumentalist and he had a lot of great talent and he was a great songwriter, but like, was he actually a, a good guitarist? And I, I know what my answer was, but I'm just ask, I'm just curious what you think of what his skill level was as a guitarist. Oh, he's a, a very fine guitar player. Yeah. But you don't want to just listen to his solos because unfortunately that's kind of a lot of what you hear is just him doing a shred solo. But when you listen to anybody, for me anyway, is to listen to what they do all the rest of the time the song is going yeah. on. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's a lot of people that can shred a solo. There aren't as many people who can make a melody out of the solo where it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm. And that, to me, is a great soloist. It's somebody where you can follow a melody instead of stringing along a bunch of licks, mm. uh, which you can do on a guitar. Oh, <laughs> you know, you can do it. And yeah, I, that's... So when you're listening to any musician, for that matter, it's to listen to what they do besides the solo. Yeah, That, to me, tells you how good a musician the person is yeah and and you know i i you know like he was a tasty player too you know like prince was a tasty uh, uh guitarist yeah he had, he had great little like between his phrasing and you know little phrases on guitar between his phrasing of, of his of singing and stuff so like he definitely had a great feel to him and and i i agree with you you can shred all day you can learn all these licks that's been played over and over again but at the end of the day is it something that's moving you? Is it something that's that's moving the song? How is it affecting the song? Uh, you know, and and because you want it to be, you you almost want it to be an extension of of the voice or something. Like I always imagine, it's like singing with your instrument. You know, like you want it to be something where it leads to something, and it, like you're saying, a, a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, is it? I, I agree with that because people can just play a bunch of notes over and over and over again, and and that's fine, and that's there's room for that, and there's a market for that. But what are you saying? What are you actually saying with your instrument? And what 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 are you um, emoting? You know, like do you emote? Are you connected to your instrument in that in that sense? 
And that's when you really get great plays. Like, you know, like I know like Joe Satriani and, uh, you know, and, and there's a couple other of those like really badass. Yeah. 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 You have Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. Yes. And yes. Johnson, you know, are well-known ones. Uh, Joe Satriani actually has the largest selling instrumental rock album of all time, which was Serpent with the Alien. Mm. And the one thing about Joe Satriani is that when you listen to his songs, you can you can hear a singer singing every single one of them. Yeah. They're beautiful, melodic songs. They're wonderful. Steve Vai's more, as he will admit, he's more out there, but also a, a real talented guy. And, and all three of those guys are amazing guitar players. Yeah. They're really good, and they can they they can play melody as well as the rest of them. You know, mm. um, and now some of the some of the most melodic soloing you'll hear is on Steely Dan records. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you'll hear some really amazing solos on those records because uh, Donald and Walter, the guys who made up that group, uh, they would have top session players play a solo on a song. And they might have two other guys play the same solo, and then they'd pick the one they liked the best. <laughs> yeah. Hey, why not? No. You know, why, if you, you have that, yeah, exactly. If you have the budget. No, Asia is probably one of my one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're getting uh, a lot of people have a some kind of a burn the saddle about Steely Dan. I think possibly some of them has to do with Donald Fagan's voice. The fact that it's, that it's so well recorded and very, you know, mm. um, but I think people are coming around to them because they're starting. In fact, I heard the guy who played guitar in the sex pistols. Mm. He said, I used to hate Steely Dan, you know, all during the time he's, he's a punk God, you know, he said, now he says, I, I listen to them all the time. <laughs> Yeah. But I would suggest to, to you folks that uh, one example I would give you is a song called Don't Take Me Alive. It's on the Steely Dan album called The Royal Scam, which was just before Asia. And it's right at the very beginning of the song. And there you'll hear uh, a, a classic example of what I'm talking about, about a melodic solo that is just, oh my God. When I first came to town, that thing was out. Everybody in this town was playing that solo, trying to figure it out and and looking at it and seeing what he was doing, you know. But it's, yeah, it's tremendous stuff. Yeah. Really good stuff. Um, yeah. The, the uh, Naders and, 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 and Marianne are talking about Eddie Van Halen and then Naders was talking about Buckethead. Um, are you familiar with Buckethead? Uh, absolutely. And, and I would say about Eddie, I mean, everybody, you know, likes eruption and, and the, the soloing he did and the tapping. I mean, yeah, he was certainly one of the first ones, if not the first. But, you know, listen to what he like, for example, a song like Panama. Listen to his what he plays on guitar while the singer is singing. Yeah. I mean, that's where I, I love to listen to Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Uh, Buckethead's a <laughs> that's I, I don't know. When I've heard his stuff, he's played with various people. Mm. It's usually on stuff that's pretty way out. Right. Yeah. So I, I really haven't had a chance to really hear him like play a song-based kind of thing, really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean by that? I, yeah, I do. So I, yeah, I, I would hesitate to say what I would think there. It's just more, he did stuff with Bernie Worrell, that, that uh, jazz uh, fusion uh, guy. and But it's all pretty, you know, it's 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 way out kind of stuff, so... Uh, but Eddie, you know, Eddie is a very melodic player. You know, great stuff to the themes of the songs he played. I thought were really good. Very mm -hmm. good player. 
Oh, the Dew? Wait a second. The Dew is Buckethead's child? I, I don't know who the Dew I've never heard you know, of the Dew. Well, I have no idea. All I know is he had the chicken bucket on yeah, his head. Yeah, now, Nader, now Nader's wants KFC, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I, really, I really respect that, you're, um, that you look at music from a very, um, a very, uh, a very rounded point of view where you're looking at the song and the craft of the song and and like what what goes into uh, making a song and and whereas a lot of people tend to drift into their specific parts that they play in a song i really enjoy i really enjoyed talking to you about just like the idea of craft and 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 do you do you consider yourself more of a songwriter than a guitarist um no, I, I mean I've always I've always been a vocalist, guitarist, songwriter. That's mm. I kind of do all three, and, mm. and uh, yeah, I, and my well, okay. Um, I, I taught uh, well, uh, two of the guys in Incubus, which was a very since you're a two thousands guy, you know Incubus. You know, Incubus, I love them. Platinum albums, and uh, I taught I, I gave vocal lessons for a short time to to Brandon, the, the lead singer, and then I wow. taught the bass player Dirk Lance for quite a while, and then. After Dirk uh, left the group, he and I had a band together for about nine years. We had a, it was called Willie's Nerve Clinic. You can look it up on streaming service and stuff if you want to hear that. But um, they were interesting. And in, in when they got the deal, they did a couple of albums that were more, I would say, rap funk oriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dirk, his real name is Alex, he, he would come and visit me. And, uh, you know, he kind of just because he was always very good in that respect. Um, so he would come and he would tell me what they were doing and all that. And the first two albums, they did OK. But he told me that they were still living on their advances. Wow. This was after two al albums. Mm -hmm. And they made a morning view, which had a drive on it, mm -hmm. you know, which became that was started them on their platinum run there for right. a couple of albums. And so it took them a little while there for the record company to get them going, but then finally they were they got a, a, a good following in L.A. and could pack a club like the Troubadour and stuff, and then they were off and running. But you know they had issues too, and and so eventually Alex left, and that was when he came back. He even took some lessons from me again to work on music theory because he was obviously a great bass player and didn't yeah. need to teach him bass anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he he had a hard, he had a hard time getting doing the what he needed to do to really make progress with that and so then we just decided to put a band together so oh that's awesome yeah uh, but that was when things were still you know there were still record labels and right. it was a little more traditional it was just a little bit after that that napster started to come in and things started to change right right and that's when uh metallica got raked over the coals remember that because they said hey wait a minute here and everybody was crapping on them because they said, well, you guys got millions of dollars. What do you care? And his whole point was, look, we just did a song for a movie. And before we've even gotten the mix out, it's out on Napster. Yeah. You know, we, so we don't have control of our own music anymore. Yeah. And they got just raked over the coals until people like Dave Matthews and Cheryl Crow and some other people, you know, rallied to their cause there. Right. But boy, they took a lot of grief for that. And they so did. it was, 
yeah, it was not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, I know we're hitting our two hour mark here, so I'll, I'll let you go here in a bit. Uh, but we had another question from the chat that I wanted to ask you about before you go. Um, where uh, Marianne wants to know if you're familiar with the Wrecking Crew. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, um, the drummer uh, was Hal Blaine. Um, I had two uh, run-ins with Hal. Uh, the first one, a buddy and I were out in California doing a recording session before I moved here. And the guy we were with uh, knew Hal and he called him one day and because my friend that I was with was a drummer who loved Hal Blaine. And so he called over there and it just happened to be one of those days where Hal felt like, okay, you know, yeah, come over, I'll tell some stories and stuff. So we went over to his house and he sat there and told us about the Beatles and the Beat Boys and all this stuff he'd done. It was an amazing afternoon. Yeah. And then uh, later on, when I was teaching, like 20 years later, I had a student of mine who was his father, was the engineer for Phil Spector when he did Be My Baby and all that stuff. I mean, wow. you've lost love and feel. Yeah, it was incredible. And he knew that Hal and a bunch of his cronies met at this restaurant down the street on Sunday mornings just to shoot the shit, you know? <laughs> so, it was another, so was, Hal gave me this uh, autographed picture and he had a wrecking crew t-shirt on and all that stuff, you know? Wow. So it was, yeah, that, but that was the, the studio days. And so yeah. I worked with the stuff I talked about before mm -hmm. earlier in the interview. I, I talked with, I, I was with the next generation of studio musicians. Mm. Uh, those are some of the ones who played on Steely Dan records and all yeah. that. So those yeah. are the ones who came after uh, the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. And then um, when they made that movie, which I, maybe your uh, person there has seen it, of the Wrecking Crew, uh, one of the guys, Teddy, Tommy Tedesco, the guitar player, that's his son who made the movie. And for a while there, he had a hard time um, getting uh, some funding because what happens is, is there was a whole bunch of songs in the movie. You know, because of the guys playing all right, that stuff. Right. Well, he had to get the rights to all that stuff, and it turns out it came to a, a whopping three hundred thousand dollars. He had to come up with to get the rights, so he could then, you know, show the movie commercially. Wow. And he eventually did. He he got in. He included some stuff with Glenn Campbell, which was real nice because Glenn was very sick at that time. Hmm. And uh, and we're speaking of great guitar players. <laughs> Glenn Campbell, that was an yeah. unbelievable guitar player. You know, of course, he had some great hits too. You know, singing, but yeah. So yes, I, I do know about the Wrecking Crew, and it's, and, and it's a great story. And she is familiar with the movie. It's a great movie. She said, "Oh, good, uh, good. Yes. Chuck. I I really really appreciate you sitting down and, and giving us so much of your time. I'm sure you're a busy human being. So um, everybody who's in chat, make sure that you are clicking on these links to StrayDeuce.com and uh, to all these links to his music. And um, I, I and if you're listening on the audio end, make sure you go into the show notes and click around and support." Chuck and what he's doing right now. Chuck, do you got anything? What, what do you got coming up? Do you got any releases coming up? You working on music? How? how uh, yeah, what do you got I have, coming up? Yeah, here? I have uh, probably three more tunes already in the can, and that the video person I'm working with them to put more up. So right now I'm just concentrating on that to get things up on social media. Right. And then probably put a band together and start playing them live. There you go. There you go. Chuck, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so no, much for coming fun. on. Thank you very much. I'm glad that. Uh, take care, bud. Yeah, you too.
Thank you so much, Chuck. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your truths with us. Again, everybody, go and check out his website, straightdeuce.com. He has all kinds of music and he has all kinds of things going on. I think you can even take lessons with Chuck if you're in the LA area. So go go give Chuck some love, y'all. Go give Chuck some love. I had a wonderful conversation and I was very happy to have him on the show. Uh, okay, guys, that's it out of me. I'm gonna I gotta I'm gonna go. I gotta go. I'm leaving. I, I, I'm no longer. I, I, I will tell you, I, I have a coworker who, who like, t- who went to my boss and was talking shit about me. And then my boss had to come and talk to me. And let me tell you, that pissed me off. I, I, I'm not gonna go into details because it, it's just, it's, it's stupid, but it pissed me off. I just want you to know that I'm pissed off at my job. I don't appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the day I can go back to not working at a fucking for someone else. But for now, here we are. We're doing it. We're back at it, y'all. We're back at it. So, uh, everybody, remember if if you're mad at someone at your co- at your work, just uh, ignore them. That's what I did. I, I I the person was she's such a fat fucking cunt. Let me just say that, okay? She's a fat ass cunt with terrible teeth. And she's a miserable human being, and uh, she she's constantly on break. I mean, and I'm talking about she's fat. You know, I'm fat. I'm really fat. This bitch is real fat. Like she's probably like 350 pounds, like six two. She's just this big lump of lard who's constantly sitting, talking shit. Nobody likes her. Like nobody, nobody likes her none and, and um, it, she's pushing me to that point where i'm gonna have to tell her that i'm gonna have to tell her that nobody likes her uh, and she's lazy and I, i'm not gonna call her a fat cunt that's for sure but uh, she's lazy she's a lazy lazy human being with terrible teeth so if you have a co-worker like that just communicate the bare necessities and then don't say goodbye to them or hi to them if they say hi to you you probably should say hi like I'm only maintaining this thin veneer of, of decency just so I can get through my day because I do have to communicate with this person. So I communicate and then uh, it's like, fuck off. So if you have a coworker that's that big of a piece of shit and when nobody likes, just mostly ignore them. Just tell, if you have to talk to them, give them the bare minimum. It just you know and she's not gonna ever catch a hint there's she's told me so many stupid stories about how her kids were like molested but it's, both of her kids were molested i'm just like how do you get both of your kids fucking molested you fucking you loser <laughs> god damn it anyways um you know I, I i feel bad for the kids that has to deal with fucking such a fat worthless human being but you know we, we we're, we're we're dealt the cards that were dealt and that's our lives you know we, we deal with that and hopefully those kids don't turn into big fat worthless tubs of shit themselves uh, but um that's the problem hater ass parents having these hating ass kids it's just how it goes it's just how it goes friends so uh there you go a little venting it's been a while since i've vented to you guys so there it is um the <laughs> seeing those memes of podcasts is like hey white guy don't start a podcast get therapy that's that i say fuck you 
You know who's saying that? Fat, worthless tubs of shit with bad teeth who are bad at their jobs. Listen, you can be fat. You can be overweight. Look, Lizzo is is an overweight, fat girl who she who who, who gets the fucking job done. She gets the job done. She's not lazy. I mean, you can't be lazy as like a pop star. Like that is a grueling everyday full schedule barely any days off you're just going 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 i mean i'm i mean i'm just flabbergasted that she has that kind of energy like she's i mean she's a big girl and she can do all those things and she's out there so good on her you know i've come to appreciate lizzo in these past few uh in these past few months uh I, I, i i i i you know she embraces her chubbiness which is fine it's not healthy no matter what anybody tells you on tiktok it's not healthy to be overweight okay it's just not and you can you can rationalize it any way you want but lizzo is not healthy i am not healthy i'm overweight i need to lose weight if she lost all that weight and the fucked up thing is that if lizzo loses all that weight people probably be mad at her and talk shit about her on instagram because did you guys see what happened to Adele? That's what they did to Adele. Adele lost all that weight. Now she's all like looking, you know, pretty, you know, looking beautiful, looking radiant. And, and everybody's like, oh, fuck you, Adele. You're supposed to stay fat forever. It's like these bitches, you know, it's sickening. It's just people making excuses to stay fat. So I'm just not, I'm not here for that. But, you know embrace and be who you want this is america do what you want i'm not mad at you just i don't think it's healthy it's just it's just just scientifically unhealthy don't let tiktok ruin your lives and 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 have you skirt your responsibility to yourself so end rant (laughs) all right everybody be good to your fellow human being hjs for everybody love you guys I'll see you guys on Friday with Bentley Michaels.